Prepubescent psychopaths commit the vilest evil against an infant. Today, they walk free among you. A tyrannical teen becomes a serial killer of taxi drivers and disco dancers. These are just a couple of cases in our gruesome catalog of killer kids. The young monstrosities you won't believe are real. Zachary Davis We'll start with the boy that we call the ultimate face of evil, a young man who perfectly fits the description of disturbed. The date is August 10, 2012. A 15-year-old boy in Tennessee, USA is going about his normal day. He's a quiet kid. He doesn't have too many friends. Those that do know him think he's a bit strange. He's obsessed with serial killers for some reason. He loves reading about their methods. One of his pastimes is googling types of torture. He often downloads images of obscene gore. His favorite book? Stephen King's Misery. You could say he's one to keep an eye on. Not long ago, he wrote in his notebook, you can't spell slaughter without laughter. This is a kid who is loved by his mother Melanie, a paralegal and a triathlete who adores Zachary and his 16-year-old brother Josh. On this day, all three of them go to see a movie. It's been a good day out. Melanie knows both boys have not been right since their father died in 2007 of ALS. She sent Zachary to see a psychiatrist. While the psychiatrist did say her son was suffering from a depressive disorder, Melanie decided it was best to cure her son with love and understanding. It was a mistake, a grave one. After they got home from the movie, Zachary goes into his room and starts packing things into a backpack. The items include his beloved notebooks and a toothbrush, but what's entirely disturbing is he also packs a pair of gloves, a ski mask, and a claw hammer. He has plans for the future, but right now he's concentrated on the present, which means waiting for Melanie to go to bed. She does that at about 9pm, and when Zachary can hear the sounds of her slumber, he calmly walks into her room with a sledgehammer held in his hands. Towering above Melanie, he strikes her head with significant force. He keeps striking maybe 20 times until his mother is well and truly smashed, like someone on a medieval wheel. Blood is everywhere, spattered all over the bed and on the wall, covering Zachary himself. He looks like a maniac, clenching the weapon in his now red hands. He walks to what he calls the game room and takes whiskey and gasoline to drench the place. Soon the room is aflame, and Zachary, purposefully leaving his sleeping brother alone, leaves the house hoping his brother will die in the fire. Thanks to a fire alarm and the fact that Zachary had closed the game room door, his brother will survive. Zachary's plans are thwarted when he's picked up by police about 10 miles away from his house. During a subsequent interrogation in what can be described as a voice that epitomizes evil, he explains some things. The detective already knows some things about Zachary, his obsession with killing, his mental distress, and what seems like a willingness to emulate his favorite serial killers. Zachary explains what his plans were, what would have happened had he not been picked up by the cops. I didn't feel anything when I killed her, Zachary said about his mother. Something was obviously very wrong with this kid. He had some serious mental issues. His father's death had obviously hurt him, but he had a loving family, unlike the majority of the serial killers he admired, whose lives were mired in trauma from a young age. Zachary's evil seemed to come from an unknown place. He was an enigma, like all the kids you'll hear about today. Even in court, he showed absolutely no remorse when he was shown photographs of his mother's beaten body. He quite calmly explained that he'd used the sledgehammer because there was no chance of missing or leaving her alive. He smiled when describing the sound the weapon made when connecting with her head. It was a wet, thumping sound, he recalled. In later interviews, he looked like a madman. When the judge sentenced Zachary to life in prison, he shared some words with the court. You became evil, Mr. Davis. You went to the dark side. It's that plain and simple. Can we beat this story? You know us, viewers. Of course we can. Let's now have a look at one of the murders that Zachary had read about and was highly impressed with, a crime that he admitted served as an inspiration for his own crime. Nevada Tan 
What's so utterly shocking about this next crime is that the murderer was only 11 years old, and to most people she seemed like a little girl who was as harmless as the teddy bear she kept by her bed. She was in fact a brutal killer of the highest order, and that's why young Zachary had so much respect for her. On June 1, 2004, girl A is at her elementary school in Sasebo in Japan's Nagasaki prefecture. It's lunchtime, and girl A walks up to another girl, 12-year-old Satomi Mitarai. It's just an ordinary lunch break for all the other 6th graders, some of whom are playing, others napping, but most are still eating from their bento boxes. Girl A goes on over to Satomi's desk and says to her, hey, come outside with me, I have something funny to show you. Satomi has never really had any issues with Girl A, so why not go see this thing? The two walk out of the classroom, and Girl A leads the way to another room, an empty one. Satomi asks her what this funny thing is. Girl A's face suddenly transforms into an expression of infantile rage. She whips out an incredibly sharp box cutter and slices Satomi's neck. Soon after the teacher realizes the girls are missing, she goes to see where they are when she finds young Satomi lying in a pool of blood. When she asks Girl A what happened, she hears the reply, I have done a bad thing. There has never been a clear motive. Maybe Girl A had read too many violent comic books, maybe she was stressed or had Asperger's syndrome, but she wasn't the only case of kids killing other kids in Japan. Satomi's father later said, I can't understand it at all, I don't have a clue. Sometimes the reasons for such acts are not easy to ascertain, especially when the killer is so young and seemingly innocent. Girl A apparently cried a lot after the murder, she was sent to a kind of special school for rehabilitation. Strangers even wished her well. Others did not, they knew about the stories of Girl A kicking and punching other students, they knew that she was very capable of violence, they'd heard the police psychologist who said Girl A scared the hell out of her classmates and that there had been an incident with her and a knife not long before the murder. They also knew about her obsession which was looking at violent images online, she loved the battle royale story and was a big fan of the death themed flash animation urban legend Red Room. You can of course hope that she'll get better and one day become a functioning member of society. It might be possible, but with this next sicko we seriously doubt that's ever going to happen. That's because this young chap didn't just kill one person, he became the USA's youngest ever serial killer. Craig Price When this young man was arrested at the age of 16, like many of the kids we'll talk about today, he was as cool as ice. He had the look of a psychopath which featured the iconic complete lack of remorse. It's July 27, 1987, Craig is just 13 years old, he's already gotten into petty crime, stealing, breaking into houses, and even a bit of stalking. But tonight, he's about to up the ante. He has a plan and that is to break into his neighbor's house in Warwick, Rhode Island. The owner is 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer, she might have seen Craig around the neighborhood but the two don't know each other. Craig crawls through her window, walks into the kitchen and grabs a knife, after which he goes into her bedroom where she's sleeping and stabs her 58 times. This is a boy whose friends like to watch Scooby-Doo and still play with action figures. Despite some bad behavior, Craig is liked in the neighborhood. He's a large kid but with a baby face. He's good at football, given his bulk, and soon gets the name Iron Man, even though he's still just a kid. No one suspects that he is a vicious killer. Like all serial killers, once he's had a taste for blood, he needed more. It's two years later when his neighborhood becomes frozen with shock when Craig's own family starts talking about a monster in their midst, someone who's done the most terrible thing. Craig takes pleasure in the fact that they have no idea they are talking about him. By all accounts, Craig lives in a stable family and he is loved and cared for. His home life, at least to friends of the family, is great. The other night, he broke into the house of 39-year-old Joan Heaton. 
He had one intention as he sneaked into her house with the butcher's knife he'd bought earlier. This 15-year-old savage stabs her as she sleeps. She screams out as he bites her face. He loves the sound she makes when she's hurt. After stabbing her 62 times, he walks into the bedroom of her kids, both are now awake and shaking with fright. The girls Jennifer, 10, and Melissa, 8, are later found in a similar state to their mom. For the detectives that arrive on the scene, it's a sight they never thought possible. They're traumatized by what they see. Soon the newspapers are talking about the Warwick Slasher. People put extra locks on their doors. They never leave the windows open. They order their children home long before nighttime sets in. They are literally terrorized by a boy who they often chat with. Someone they think is a little bit cheeky at times, but a good kid on the whole. The police know something they don't. They're looking for a killer with huge feet size 13, which is not a common size at all. Believing these crimes are the work of someone local, they put their heads together and find a kid who's been done for burglary before and other minor crimes. That's Craig Price, and when they look in his backyard shed, they find a collection of knives. They bring him in, and one of the first things they ask is, where did you get that big gash on your finger? Craig didn't deny it for long. In fact, he seemed almost proud of his work. The newspapers were soon talking about the capture of Rhode Island's most notorious serial killer, but what people started talking about was the fact that this 5-foot, 10-inch, 240-pound kid was 15 and he'd started killing when he was 13. How on earth was that possible? It was unheard of even in ultra-violent America, a country where serial killers were seemingly propagating like tadpoles in a large swamp. Craig didn't seem one bit bothered about his crimes when he described them to the detectives. When he talked about killing those children, it was like he was explaining what he had for lunch that day. One of the detectives later said, He talked about killing these people like it was nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. It's incredible. And he took pleasure in telling them that because he was a juvenile, he'd soon be out of prison. To say the least, the detectives who'd seen the bite marks on the mother's face and witnessed knife blades snapped off in the arms of her young daughters were furious. All they thought was this is a person that has no remorse. And we believe when he says that he will make history when he gets out in a few years. Craig actually told them he would, bragging about it. That night, Detective Tom Colgan returned home to his wife and children and bawled his eyes out. He cried and cried and cried. He'd been the first person on the scene in that triple murder, and to see this kid smirk at his actions broke him. Detective Kevin Collins reacted differently. He flew into a rage, promising himself that as long as he lived, that kid was not going to walk out of juvenile detention in a few years' time. With relatives of the victims and local police, Collins created the citizens opposed to the release of Craig Price Group. The pressure mounted and the state soon passed a law that allowed juveniles to be tried in adult court but only for serious crimes. This is why Craig is still in prison today and may never be released. Since his arrest, he's seen many psychiatrists. As we said, it seemed that Craig Price came from a loving family. There's no evidence of any abuse, not even aggressive spanking. He said in the past that white people were to blame because when he was young, on occasion, people issued racist slurs at him. That might have been true, and as wrong as it is, people generally don't mutilate children when they're offended. Psychiatrists have said that Craig is a psychopath, his violence has nothing to do with racism, and one of them said, I suspect from all I've seen and know of these murders that Craig was in a psychotic rage at the time of these events and that he should probably be classified as a serial murderer, a disorganized type. The Heaton family he killed had only lived in that neighborhood for two weeks. They'd even helped Craig fix his bike chain one day. Craig later said he felt a racist aura around the mom. He later admitted, I knew the act of killing Joan Heaton was the answer. 
Now a grown man, Craig has had multiple fights in prison and on occasion has attacked other inmates with shivs. He did that just in 2019 and was sentenced to 25 years for it. While inmates who kill kids and women can face harassment and kill-on-sight type violence from other inmates, his history of incarceration shows that he's the one who initiated most of the attacks against the inmates and officers. Can some people be born evil? Can the brain just be wired up the wrong way with some folks? We'll tell you our theory soon, but first you need to hear about another blossoming beast, Jasmine Richardson. If there ever was a natural-born killer, Craig Price was one, and we have no doubt that Jasmine Richardson could also be given this title. Like Craig, she had a few screws loose. As we said before, with just about all serial killers, there's a history of extreme childhood trauma and horrific violence. But with some killers, it's never obvious where they got their evil side from. Jasmine is one of those people. The story contains two killers, but one of them was 23 at the time they met in 2016. He was the lover of Jasmine, Jeremy Steinke. She was 13 at the time of the murders, but 12 when she met him. Sure, you can say he made her do it, she's also a victim, but we're not buying that. The story takes place in Medicine Hat, a city in southeast Alberta, Canada, population 63,000. They met at a punk rock concert. Jasmine is really taken with this older guy, who most people think is way too old for her. He's an unusual guy too, claiming he's a 300-year-old werewolf. He's an angry goth, a rebel without a cause, more Marilyn Manson than Susie and the Banshees. Jasmine's parents don't want their daughter seeing a guy who's so much older than her. She's a child and he's a young adult. They don't actually know he's a bit messed up. His mom is a very angry alcoholic and his stepfather has been abusive to him. Jasmine's parents, who love her dearly, try to stop the relationship in its tracks and Jeremy becomes enraged. He writes online, Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the beep they have done, especially when I see to it that they are gone. Their blood shall be payment. Thing is, this is the kind of thing he always writes. He does claim to be a werewolf after all. People took him about as seriously as they would a child throwing a tantrum because Santa didn't bring him a helicopter for Christmas. Nonetheless, bad plus bad doesn't equal good. There is someone else in this equation who looks at his words online and says, okay, good idea, let's do it. About one month later, Deborah Richardson and her husband Mark are stabbed to death in their basement at home. Just after Jeremy had done this to them, he goes upstairs to where Jasmine's little brother Jacob is pleading for his life. As he whines at them, I'm too young to die, Jasmine starts feverishly stabbing him. Jeremy then finishes him off by slashing his throat. As planned, the two go on the run with some help from a third party. Right now it seems like the young girl might have been taken advantage of by a very troubled man, but is this the case? Is Jasmine also a victim? We think not. Not only did she stab her brother, but she had made the plan with her lover, whom she promised to marry. In fact, it seems killing her parents was her idea. Police records show the first time anyone talked about killing anyone was in an email when Jasmine wrote to Jeremy saying, it begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. She received the reply, well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with like details and stuff. Later, Jeremy said, when you find your soulmate, you'll do anything for them. I did anything. Jasmine also shared some words in court of a similar nature, saying about her plan, I loved him so much I thought it would bring us closer together. Jasmine was charged with first-degree murder, as was her lover. She spent some time in a young offenders unit and later in a psychiatric unit. To some people's dismay, she was released back into the world in 2016. Jeremy Steinke is still serving a 25-year sentence. This next story will make you wonder what it means to be a human. Even though it happened years ago, the wound it left on Great Britain is still oozing with anger and tears. The question you have to answer is, just how evil can you be when you're just a kid? 
we mean barely past the age where you don't like to sleep without a light glimmering in your bedroom. Robert Thompson and John Venables It's February 12, 1993. Two kids, Robert Thompson and John Venables, both just 10 years of age, are in a shopping center not far from the city of Liverpool in England. Like they so often do, they're skipping school. They hate school and find much more pleasure in going to the local shops and stealing candy and toys. On this day, they've stolen a bunch of things, including some modeling paint they'll later use in the vilest way you can imagine. This is what happens next. They're looking at people in the shopping center, many of them mothers with children too young for school. What they're actually doing is looking for a victim. They're like jaguars assessing their prey. They intend to steal a child away from their mother and take them to a quiet place in the street where they will throw them in front of a car. That would be evil in itself, but they're going to do much, much worse. They find their prey, a two-year-old named Jamie Bolger. He's with his mother, Denise. Just for a second, she lets go of Jamie's hand because she needs to pay for the meat she just bought at the butcher shop. When she turns around to see where Jamie is, he's gone. CCTV is right now showing Jamie being led away by two young boys, images that will soon be seared into the minds of the British public. The boys take Jamie to a canal not too far away from the shopping center. That's where they begin their torment by dropping the small child on his head. They keep walking and are seen in total by about 38 people. Some adults naturally ask what two kids are doing with an infant, to which the reply is that he's their younger brother. They giggle as they walk along, even going into a pet shop for a while. It's all good fun for them. When they get to a secluded bit of railway line somewhere in the distance, they begin their sadistic torture, which includes using that modeling paint. They do things to him with batteries, bricks, and stones, hurting him as an angry child might do to an old doll. They finally kill Jamie with a heavy weight taken from the train tracks. Doctors will later say the child suffered 42 serious injuries, any of which could have killed him. Jamie is already dead by the time they place him on the railway tracks. When both boys are talking about how cool it will look when a train goes over him, and then they get bored with waiting, so they just leave him there, and later a train does pass by and cuts his body in two pieces. These kids were not criminal masterminds. They'd been seen on CCTV. Scores of people remembered their faces. When the police spoke to them, one of them had modeling paint on his shoes. Does this sheer lack of cunningness show they didn't know what they'd done? One of them actually asked a cop if they could make him come alive again, as if he were a broken toy. Barely anyone in the country didn't want to string these two kids up by their necks, even though some argued that they literally didn't know the difference between right and wrong and had violent upbringings themselves. Hang them, shouted some of the public. Age didn't matter to them. These boys were sick in the head. So in 2001, when the boys turned 18, they were released under new identities. The people were again furious. The press had never even been able to photograph them, so how they looked as young adults was a mystery. Even though the outrage-inducing tabloids tried to help them form a picture in their heads, the question was, can people who've done such a horrible thing be rehabilitated? The British system, perhaps quite a bit kinder than the US system, thought the answer was yes. It should be said both boys came from broken homes. With Robert's mom drinking her way through life and almost losing her kids to a care home, John's mom was less prone to violence, but a case report from a social worker said she had a serious depressive problem, which had led to neglect of her children. Venables has now been in and out of trouble all his life, using drugs, drinking, and spending time in prison for various things, including some sexual transgressions. His identity has always been kept a secret because he will be killed and probably killed horribly. The system will always have to protect him. At least Robert Thompson is said to have integrated well into society. Do they even deserve to be living among the public? Many people on the tough streets of Northern England still want their pound of flesh. Turning the other cheek is not their thing. They say leopards don't change their spots. Once a killer, always a killer. The USA will soon face a similar predicament as you will see later on. 
As for this next killer, he proved that some kids never get better. Ed Kemper there's a line in a movie that goes, You tell the angels in heaven you never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of the man who killed you. We imagine that it was true for the victims of Edmund Kemper, a creep, a killer, the literal lover of decapitated heads that he kept in his bed. But what was he like as a youngster? A bundle of joy? It's August 27, 1964. All is quiet in the house of Grandpa and Grandmother Kemper. 15-year-old Ed has been living in their house for a while. Truth be told, he hates his mother with a passion, and living with her is a nightmare. She used to lock him in a dark cellar for days and nights on end with the spiders and the rats, sometimes screaming through the cellar door as the light crept in. You deserve this, Edmund. This is what happens when you look at a woman's breasts, you disgusting little pervert. Grandmother Kemper is focused on editing a manuscript she's written about Boy Scouts called Boy's Life. Her husband is out doing the grocery shopping. As she's busy with her pen, Ed walks into the kitchen. She says, Hi, Ed, darling, not even looking up. Ed walks behind her and fires two bullets into her head. He then grabs a knife and stabs her three times. As her lifeless body drips blood, Ed sits down and waits for the return of his grandfather. He then decides it might be best to take his grandmother's body to one of the bedrooms. Even at 15, he's a hulk of a boy, not far off of the 6'9", 250 pounds he will become. He picks up his grandma like she's a mannequin. As soon as he hears his grandpa's car pull into the driveway, Ed gets up and goes out to greet his grandfather. Ed's always adored the man. He's been his rock in a life of emotional quickstand. As the grandfather gets out of the car, shopping bags in hand, he wonders why Ed's carrying a rifle, although Ed's always messing about with a gun. Well, the grandfather's had to confiscate it now and again because Ed keeps shooting animals. Hey, buddy, says the grandfather. Ed lets him walk in front and points the end of the 22 rifle at the back of his head about an inch away. Bang! The grandfather drops to the floor and dies instantly. When the cops pick Ed up, this well-spoken boy with an IQ of 145 tells them he did it. They ask why he stabbed his grandmother three times after shooting her. Ed replies, I wanted to make sure. I didn't want her to suffer. But why, why did you do it in the first place to people you obviously love? Ed looks at them with a blank expression on his face and says, I just wondered how it would feel to shoot grandma. That's what evil looks like. It looks unconcerned, it looks normal with the strange undercurrent of the absence of emotion. Heightened senses can see pure evil. These people can feel the coldness of violent psychopathy on their skin. If you look into the lives of serial killers, you start to see patterns. Physical and sexual abuse is common, as is abandonment. In general, being shown no love whatsoever is the story of most serial killers' childhoods. And as with Ed, quite a few serial killers have had absent fathers, very, very controlling, often narcissistic mothers. Ed's mom physically and psychologically tortured him. She systematically humiliated him. She destroyed every ounce of self-worth he had. This never bodes well for kids, but the vast majority don't end up becoming serial killers. We'll explain why soon. Ed fooled the psychiatrists who later treated him. He played them like fools. He stayed in a psychiatric hospital for a few days. The doctors and staff loved him. They thought he was always friendly and impressively intelligent. Right before Ed was released at the age of 21, one of the psychiatrists wrote, I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him a danger to himself or to any member of society. He was talking about the same man that later said, When I meet a pretty girl, one side of me says, I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. One of the conditions after Ed's release was that he went for regular chats with the psychiatrists, who were now saying Ed's juvenile record should be wiped, as it wasn't fair to have that taint in his good character. That was that Ed started his life again with a clean record. On September 14, 1972, Ed saw 15-year-old Aiko Koo hitchhiking, so as usual he picked her up. He was already an expert at manipulation and murder. 
he choked her to death, then went for a beer. He later took her home, dissected her, and buried the body parts. He kept her head, though, as he liked to sleep with and play with the heads of his victims. Her head was in the trunk of his car when he went for his usual appointment with his probation psychiatrist. One of them wrote that day, If I were seeing this patient without having any history available or without getting the history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. Another that day said Ed's motorcycle was more of a threat to his life and health than any threat he is presently to anyone else. Ed was eventually convicted of murdering 10 people in all, including his mother, whose head he used as a dartboard. Even after everything he'd done, the many detectives, the Mindhunter guys, and the prison staff and doctors all liked him. Ed was a star and very generous with his answers and interviews. The question is, how did he fool everyone? How do the so-called experts know when a rotten kid should be taken out of society forever? Well, with this next child, it was pretty obvious, but yet again, mistakes were made. Juan Fernando Hermosa It's 1991 and the 15-year-old Juan Fernando Hermosa is in the mood to cause trouble. He's raging inside, tired of his deaf mother and angry at the fact that his father is hardly ever at home. He spends most of his time hanging around gaming arcades in Ecuador's capital city of Quito. This is the day he gets his gang together for something serious. After drinking away much of the day and later going to a disco, the boys then get in taxis. As the driver pulls up at the destination, Juan pulls out a 9mm pistol and shoots him in the head. The others laugh nervously. Some are quiet, some are afraid. They just killed a man. Wow. They push the dead man into the back and take his car, dumping the body outside town. This is just the beginning of his reign of terror. About a week later, Juan and his gang visit their regular hairdresser, Charlie. After getting haircuts, they invite Charlie to go for drinks and shoot her dead. Make no mistake, Juan is the ringleader. Some of his buddies are just too scared to say anything, like, murdering people isn't too cool. They know how dangerous he is. Not long ago, he came into school with the head of a cat in his bag, showing it off like it was a Star Wars figure. He'd changed. Ever since he found out he was adopted, something had snapped. Over the next few weeks, bodies kept being found, all shot with a 9mm pistol. Eleven of them are the bodies of LGBTQIA people, obviously lured someplace and then executed. Eight are taxi drivers. One time the gang pulls over a truck and they shoot two of its occupants. The city is in a panic. Somebody is out there killing people for nothing. A serial killer. The police put together a task force and warn people not to go out alone at night. The gang's downfall happens soon after one of them is caught shoplifting. The cops interrogate the boy, asking him what he knows about the murders. These delinquents all seem to know each other, but the kid keeps quiet. He won't squeal. Well, not until they give him the customary beating that many Ecuadorians in police custody are used to. So the game was up, it was time to bring the young killer in. On the night they planned to capture Juan, they waited until the early hours of the morning and get into his house through a skylight. But Juan heard them and soon pulls out his gun. Bullets flew in the darkness, someone threw a grenade into the room, and then another, and there was so much firepower that a roof collapsed, trapping two cops under the rubble. Juan, still not hit, saw his chance and he tried to get out of a window. Hundreds of rounds were fired, but the only person who got hit was Juan's deaf mother. She lay dead with 11 bullet holes in her body as Juan is trying to lower himself down from the window. The place was surrounded and he was taken in, unbelievably with barely a scratch on him. The people of Ecuador couldn't believe the serial killer was just a kid who they named Nino del Terror, the child of terror. As the law stood, he was a minor, and so when the judge handed him four years for at least 22 murders, the people were outraged. The judge asked Juan why. Why did you kill them? Juan said he would have let them live had they just kept quiet. He was a psycho, no doubt about it. 
As psychos are apt to do, he became a leader in juvenile prison, not through brute force but through his cunningness. He even managed to get a gun snuck in for him. On June 17, 1993, he led a group of 10 young prisoners outside the prison with that gun, shooting a cop five times on the way. After that, he fled to Colombia but was captured again and then sent home. Incredibly, they let him finish his short sentence and he was let out in 1996. He was free, but he was wanted. In Ecuador, you don't shoot cops and kill innocent civilians and then just get away with it. Just after Juan's 20th birthday in another city while living with his father, five men in hoods over their heads get a hold of him. His body is later found. He'd been horrifically tortured, cut to pieces with a machete, and then shot so many times he looked like a human showerhead. To many people in the country, that was justice. Rough justice may be but necessary. Leopards, they say, don't change their spots. This one had to be put down. At the end of the time, the media around the world was saying no child on earth had been that evil. What kind of kid starts serial killing at 15? They obviously had very short memories. Eric Borel For decades, people have tried to figure out what went wrong with this next kid. This is what we'll say about evil. When the brain is wired a certain way and the environment is ripe for wretchedness, you can get something monstrous. Maybe that's what evil is, when nature and nurture perfectly intertwine to form a human weapon of mass destruction, when the wicked components of the environment and biology don't cancel each other out but make a highly destructive compound. Such as with Eric Borel, whose fundamentally religious mother beat the hell out of him and told him he was a child of sin. Most kids would be traumatized, but their frontal lobes would come to their rescue and tell them not to go through with what they wanted to do in their dark fantasies. Not with Eric. Eric's frontal lobes hissed and fizzed as he had an emotional short circuit. Here's the story. The year is 1995. Eric is quiet in school. He studies electromechanics and he's not a bad student. When he finishes school, he goes home to admire the pictures on his wall, old photos of his hero, Adolf Hitler. Swastikas are painted above his bed, books about war and war crimes are scattered around. He has a particular interest in America's Waco siege. Today, he has a plan. It's September 23rd, and at the age of 16, Eric takes an Anschutz 22 caliber rifle into the family kitchen and shoots his stepfather four times. That's not enough. Gritting his teeth in anger, he takes a hammer to the dead man's head. It's early evening, so as usual, Eric's stepbrother is watching TV in the living room. After hearing the screams, he turns around to see Eric staring at him from the living room door. Within a minute or two, he's dead, suffering the same fate as his father. Covered in blood from head to toe, Eric grabs the TV remote and turns over the channel. He waits patiently for his mother to return from the place where she's learned he is sinful, her beloved church. At 8.30 p.m., she enters the house, saying, Hi, I'm home. She screams when she sees her husband's bashed-in head. Bang! One shot, she's dead. For some reason, Eric doesn't go to work on her with a hammer. We'll never know why. Outside, in their beautiful, scenic village of Suez Pont in southeastern France, it's quiet. He looks outside, thinking about his next move, and then covers the bodies under sheets. He takes a backpack and fills it with cookies, a raincoat, a map, some cash, and a handgun that fires only rubber bullets. He packs a bunch of real ammunition into his pockets and now, dressed in all black with a rifle strapped to his back, he begins what he regards as his one-man blitzkrieg through pastoral France. He walks through the wilderness alone, passing sprawling vineyards and terraced orchards. Now and again he stops to rest, having a cookie or two while thinking about what he's going to do. It's almost 7 in the morning when he gets to the next village, another quiet place famous for its wine. Eric looks at a house. He knocks on the door, and his buddy from school answers. 17-year-old Alain Guillemet. What happens next we don't know, but it seems Eric wants something from Alain. They talk in the garden for a while, and then Alain sends Eric on his way. As Alain turns, Eric blasts him in the back, killing him. 
Eric walks through the town. It's getting busier now. No one thinks anything is wrong. It's hunting season, rifles are a common sight, and murder is almost unheard of in this part of rural France. Then Eric gets to the town square, calmly brings the rifle sight up to his eye and starts firing at anyone. One witness says it was like a Hollywood movie, it was surreal. One woman is bringing out the trash when she is shot and killed. Eric runs closer to a house in which he can see people. He takes aim and fires, killing an elderly woman and injuring her husband. The neighbor pulls back the blinds and the necks to see what all the commotion's about, and Eric shoots her dead. He then kills another elderly man who is drinking coffee outside on a terrace. Eric moves again, firing at two young boys. One just 15 is killed on his way to buy baguettes. He shoots a shopkeeper, a man buying a newspaper, and a guy at an ATM. He kills an old man walking his dog who's on his way to play bula with his retired buddies. Now people are running, alarms are ringing, and the fire brigade is out. People are diving under cars, jumping into doorways as this young psycho keeps firing. Finally, he's chased toward a vineyard but doesn't get there. He walks over to a cypress tree and his life ends there. Many people have been seriously injured. The death toll will be 15. But why? Because his mother called him evil and his real father wasn't around? No, it's as we said, certain bad elements all have to meet to create something so purely and demonstrably malevolent. People read in the papers that Eric sympathized with Hitler and that he liked the movies Terminator and The Silence of the Lambs and that he had a thing about guns and the military, but it still didn't make sense. With this in mind, we come to our last two evil children who if you meet them in the USA today, you might do well to turn on your psychosensitivity radar. Eric Smith August 2nd, 1993, a four-year-old child named Derek Joseph Robbie is playing outside his quiet, tree-lined neighborhood in Steuben County, New York. There's another kid playing outside, 13-year-old Eric Smith, a bespectacled kid who's the perfect picture of youthful fragility. Eric seems like a normal kid, he has loving parents, he's not even close to being impoverished, but he's experienced many problems. With his small frame, his glasses, bright red hair, and his speech impediment, he gets bullied at school almost daily. He's beaten up frequently. Inside him is an unaddressed anger that is about to explode into something terrifying. Both boys are on their way to summer camp on their bicycles when Eric stops the younger boy in his tracks. For whatever reason, and for a reason perhaps only the devil himself knows, Smith gets hold of Derek. This is not to bully him or even hit him with his fists. There's something beyond rational thinking. Eric strangles the boy and leaves him for dead. He then thinks about what he's done. He has time to consider the product of his rage and he isn't done, never mind in shock. He takes a large rock and drops it on Derek's head. Eric actually has taken the time to dig up two rocks and chosen the larger one. If this isn't macabre enough, he takes the Kool-Aid from Derek's lunchbox and wipes it into the open wounds. Police see the body is left posed, as serial killers sometimes do when they take great enjoyment from their work. Posing bodies for serial killers is their art form, the pièce de résistance of their signature. A 13-year-old doing this is unheard of in the annals of murder. A few days later, Eric looks at his mom and tells her, Mom, I did it. I killed Derek. His mom wants this to be a lie, a strange fantasy, but he is telling the truth. On November 7, 1993, Eric was convicted and sentenced to nine years to life to be served in a young offender's prison and later an adult prison. In 2002, the parole board agreed that Eric, then 22, showed little remorse. Two years later, he started talking about his murders a bit more. He admitted what he'd done was terrible, explaining that the bullying he'd faced made him take his emotional anger and rage out on someone who had done nothing to bring on such violence. In 2009, just before another parole hearing, he told a journalist that all that anger inside him back then was saved for other kids that tormented him. He said, if I could switch places with him and take the grave for him to live, I'd do it in a second. 
The Robbie family didn't believe a word of this. The attack wasn't one strike with a bat, a knife plunged in rage. It was sustained torture, the work of a maniac. In 2021, during his 11th parole board hearing, Eric said he just wanted a normal life, a wife, a job, and kids, and after a risk assessment, he was granted parole. He's now free. He'll have to see parole officers until his dying day, and if he commits a violent crime, he can kiss goodbye his freedom for the rest of his life. Still, the Robbie family is furious. The question is, will that rage reappear? This is what some Brits said would happen to the kids who tortured and killed Jamie Bolger. But while there have been some issues, those boys haven't resorted to extreme violence again. Is Eric now cured? Is that even possible? Can you rehabilitate a killer when he committed a crime that brutal? This is a question you need to ask yourself because this next killer will be released at some point too. Alyssa Bustamante October 21, 2009, St. Martins, Missouri 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante has a plan, an utterly wicked plan. This is a girl with issues. Her father's in prison, her mother is an addict, so she lives with her grandmother. She has no sense of self-worth. She hates herself and takes it out on herself. She's lacking the love and attention all children deserve. But that doesn't excuse what she does next. She's like a million troubled girls and boys in America, but the difference is she's ready to commit evil deeds. She's experienced the nurture and nature that is destined to create the wicked compound we talked about. On this day, she's hanging out at her grandparents' large property, the perfect place for adventures. Most of the time, she does enjoy running around the woods and even attending her Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But today, she has something very different on her mind. She tells her younger sister to go get that girl that lives down the street to come out and play, nine-year-old Elizabeth Olton. That she does, and Elizabeth never returns home. Elizabeth's mom calls the police, and the next day, they turn up at Alyssa's house asking questions. Have you seen this girl? She was out playing with you. Where did she go? Alyssa, almost grinning inside, tells them she has no idea where little Elizabeth is. Earlier, she'd written in her diary, I just killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them and now they're dead. I don't know how to feel, ATM. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the oh my god, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I gotta go to church now, lol. The cops find this diary in her messy bedroom, which has dark poetry written on the walls and some words written in what looks like blood. In the diary, one entry says how she plans to burn her house down with everyone in it. Another entry says, when I explode, someone is going to die. Police see what looks like a shallow grave close to Alyssa's house. Little do they know, Alyssa dug that grave five days before she committed the murder. The crime wasn't a moment of unfettered, suppressed rage. It was carefully planned. The police discovered that Alyssa had taken the girl to a wooded area, strangled her, slit her throat, and stabbed her repeatedly in the stomach. Psychiatrists later said this kind of behavior was partly due to a major depressive disorder and borderline personality disorder. As for Alyssa, she said she just wanted to know what it would feel like to take someone's life. The victim's mother called Alyssa an evil monster. Who could argue with that? She was appalled when the judge sentenced Alyssa to life in prison with the possibility of conditional release in 2024, and that is coming up soon. In 2021, someone started a petition called Repeal Law that could free Elizabeth Olton's murderer, Alyssa Bustamante, within three years. So far, it has 3,565 signatures of the 5,000 target. One of the last comments reads, She doesn't deserve any kind of freedom. This is more than she deserves, being fed and living. Elizabeth didn't get to have her life with her family. I'm Elizabeth's mother's friend, and there is nothing I would love more than to see Alyssa pay for her evil the rest of her life. Who do you think are the worst out of these killer kids? Now you need to see how the old timers did it and how these sneaky serial killers finally got caught. Or have a look at World War II serial killer even the Nazis wanted dead, Dr. Satan.